Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. This morning, we're going to look at one of the more famous passages in the book of Revelation. Revelation 3, verse 15. It says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one of the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. This is Jesus speaking to the church in Laodicea. That he, uh, I would like to suggest that this perhaps is one of the harshest words that Jesus has in the scriptures. He's not speaking to Jewish Pharisees. He's not speaking to corrupt officials. He's speaking to the church. It's a rebuke. Jesus says to the lukewarm church, you make me sick. Ouch. Just let that sit in. Why does he have such harsh words to this church? What has made this church lukewarm? And what does it mean for us today, 2,000 something years later? 
Remember, this book was written to seven churches in Asia Minor as an apocalyptic, prophetic, pastoral letter encouraging his disciples to remain faithful. John's writing this to tell Jesus followers everywhere to remain faithful to Jesus as you live in an empire consumed with worshiping idols. John has seen the resurrected Jesus and he was instructed by an angel to write what he sees. So the churches he pastors dealing with unique issues specific to their context, to their city. Uh, He is writing an instruction for discipleship. You see, they were being influenced by a culture which has its own mind, its own power, its own forms of influence that shape you and form you into an image that reflects your context and culture. John gets this and he knows that there is a threat to discipleship. There is a threat to uh, the followers of Jesus and that threat doesn't look like what we think it looks like. It's not just persecution. It's not just pressure. It's not just falling out of love with Jesus. There are real threats. Perhaps um, the most serious of all are the things that we face today. So we get to the uh, the church in Laodicea. And this church, perhaps more than any other church in the book of Revelation of the seven, reflects the American church at our current moment. And you will see why in just a few moments. So why don't we do this? Why don't we jump back into the text? And we'll start with Revelation um, chapter 3, verse 14. I want you to have your Bibles and read along with me in your Bibles. And if you have kids running around, I understand that it's a challenge. If you have families um, like me, I don't know what your context is, um, but I do know it's a challenge to engage in this type of church environment with little ones. So I wanna pray for us as we jump in and specifically that you would hear what you need to hear because I know that God will use whatever he wants to get through to you if you open up your heart and open up your ears. So Holy Spirit, would you come now? Would you open our heart and mind to the text, to the word of God and allow us to hear your voice clearly in the midst of all of the distractions we have. Let us hear you clearly in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So Jesus here is the amen the faithful and true witness and the ruler of God's creation. Skip down to verse 20. I know there's some harsh text here, but we're gonna come back to it because I wanna start with the promises that Jesus has. Verse 20, it says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Come on, church, are you awake? Are your ears working is one way to end 
the text. Jesus is the amen. In Hebrew, the amen is saying yes. It's about acknowledging something that is valid and binding. It's a way of, something, of saying something is utterly trustworthy and true. It is um, something that we commit ourselves to. It's not just an end of a prayer. It's a commitment to something that is trustworthy and true. Jesus is ultimately that which is yes, trustworthy and true. Are you with me? Can I get an amen? All right, he is the faithful and true witness. In other words, he is the representative of God. He is God in the flesh and he is the creator and the ruler of God's creation. He reigns over all things. This is the revelation of Jesus. So if you need anything today, you need to know that it's Jesus who is trustworthy. Jesus is truth. Jesus is the representation of God. He represents who God is and we come under that declaration and lordship. So whatever else you hear, that's what we need to start with the right vision and accurate view of who God is. Now, the message that we're gonna hear has this incredible rebuke, but there is this beautiful promise at the end. And I wanna start here because there are three things I want you to hear to begin with. First of all, for those who are faithful, you need to hear this. Jesus is near. The image he gives us is he's standing at the door knocking. He is at the door. Let him into the, the rooms of your life. He's inviting him. He, he wants to be invited into the areas of your life. He waits at the door, eager, waiting for intimacy with you. He's the, the other image you need to understand is this is the church he's referring to. And in some ways, Jesus is on the outside of the church. Isn't that crazy? The Laodicean church has this beautiful church filled with activity and and spiritual things, but Jesus is standing on the outside of the church. And so the invitation is to let Jesus in. Let him in. Let him in. It is possible for followers of Jesus to live lives without Jesus at the center. It is possible to live lives without Jesus in it as a Christian. So where is he with you today? Also associated with this are two great promises connected to Jesus's heart and desire. He wants you, he wants to eat a meal with you. It says that he will come and sit and have a meal. And in the first century context, in Jewish context, what that means is Jesus desires intimacy with you, fellowship, friendship. He desires covenantal vulnerable, intimate, authentic relationship with you. It doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, what your past looks like, what you've done. Jesus, the image he gives you, desires to sit down and have a meal with you, to to have that intimate covenantal relationship with you. But not just that. It says that he will give you, he will share his throne. And isn't this fascinating that Jesus not only wants intimacy, but he wants to share his resources, and his inheritance. You see, he was victorious. Jesus was victorious, and now he sits on his Father's throne. And what Jesus invites all of those who are faithful to do in the age to come when kingdom, uh, it reigns once and for all and heaven comes to earth is, for those who are faithful, Jesus wants to share his reign, his rule, his throne with you. That's crazy. We don't even have a glimpse of what this looks like. It would be as if Bezos, Jeff Bezos, who made something like $13 billion in a day a few weeks ago, 
who now has over $170 billion. It would be like him becoming friends with you and then sharing half of his wealth that he worked to earn, however you look at that. It just doesn't compute, it doesn't make sense, but that's the kind of God we have. Jesus desires intimacy with you and desires to reign with you. That, isn't that, those, these are two promises that are, that are probably the most significant Laodicea will have the harshest rebuke, but it will always ha- also have the greatest promise attached to it. The third thing I want you to know from the beginning, and we're gonna continue, is that the church needs the spirit of God to understand what is happening in the world at this moment and understand what is happening in heaven at this moment. The spirit of God uh, it, it equips the church to understand what's going on behind the scenes. Heaven is ultimate reality. And the throne of God, which, which we'll talk about next week, is the headquarters. The throne of God is the headquarters of reality. And we need to hear the whispers of the Holy Spirit. It says at the end in verse 20, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Holy Spirit or the Spirit is saying to the church. Another way of translating that is, are your ears working? So the question I wanna begin with as we go into this text is, Are your ears working? Are you listening? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit right now? Are you listening to God speak? He is always speaking. He is whispering. He is blowing. He is speaking loudly to the church, but I wonder if we're paying attention. So today, I wanna encourage you to write this down. Write down the things that the Holy Spirit says. So, of all the churches in the book of Revelation, Laodicea ends with the greatest promises and blessings, but it also begins with a very harsh critique. So verse 15 of Revelation, it says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Whew. So there it is, the lukewarm church. Laodicea, this famous passage has been taught for many years. Uh, pre- preachers have used it as a way of trying to scare people into following Jesus, and I understand that. But this text doesn't mean what I think you think it might mean, and I'm assuming a lot here, but most people think that hot means good and cold means bad, which makes sense when you hear this text, but if you lived in Laodicea at the time, you would understand the implications because Laodicea lacked a natural local water source as a city. And it was a very wealthy city, so they were able to bring in water from miles away through an aqueduct system of stone pipes. So by the time the water traveled a few miles away uh, uh, into the city, the water itself lost its freshness and its taste. So six miles from Laodicea was a city called Heropolis, and Heropolis was a famous city for hot springs. They had this natural hot spring of water that flowed across the valley and spilled off a cliff opposite of Laodicea. And so by the time the water spilled over to the city, to Laodicea, Laodicea, say that three times fast, it gradually became lukewarm water. And it became so distasteful because of the minerals that it even uh, made people vomit, those who drank from that water source. So it's specific to Heropolis, which here's a map you can see Laodicea, uh, Heropolis, and also Colossae. Colossae was a city a few miles away known for a cold spring water. So you have Luke, you have Laodicea, 
next to Heropolis and Colossae. Colossae, cold, refreshing water. Heropolis, hot, fresh spring waters. The water of Laodicea was neither hot nor cold. And it was neither refreshing or healing. You see, Jesus wasn't saying, I think that what scholars have argued is Jesus wasn't saying that um, the opposite, they are opposite, hot is good and cold is bad. That's not what was being said. In fact, one author says this, yes, Jesus does find lukewarm Christians nauseating, but the point of the hot or cold is shaped by the geographic, geographical realities of Heropolis. Heropolis had hot healing water. Colossae had cold refreshing water. Laodicea had neither. The, the church in Laodicea was providing neither refreshment for the spiritual, spiritually weary nor healing for the spiritually sick. It was totally ineffective and thus distasteful to the Lord. Let me just pause there. The church was totally ineffective. The church was totally ineffective. One, one author says, lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. You see, lukewarmness says that Jesus is not worthy of passionate faith. Given who he is, Jesus Christ, given that he is the cosmic Christ, he is the savior of the universe, the ruler, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the, uh, the, the one holding life and death in his hands, the author of life. Giving the fact that we know who he is, he deserves vigorous, robust, passionate, wholehearted, zealous faith. But, the church in Laodicea was lukewarm. Another word for lukewarm would be apathetic uh, or indifferent. The church was apathetic. The church was indifferent. They held a belief in Jesus without passion, a belief in Jesus that, that preferred an individualistic savior of souls, if you will, that made or who made no demands upon their lifestyle and practices. What uh, happens in Laodicea is what is happening to the church in America. See, the question I have is what leads to apathetic Christianity or what leads to spiritual apathy or lukewarm Christianity? I believe there's a few things that you could say. Number one, people stop listening to God and the scriptures and they start listening to themselves and culture. You stop listening to God and, and the scriptures you stop living your life based off the scriptures and you start listening to yourself, your emotions, your preferences, your ideals shaped by culture. Second is you lose passion for Jesus as life becomes increasingly more complex and faith as a result becomes a form of a habit, it becomes a habit or a chore or an obligation. Third is it's simple, you get distracted by the world. So you get distracted by the world and that goes to four, you slowly accommodate and integrate the mindset of culture into your life. So you move from distracted by the things of the world and move into slowly accommodating the things of the world and integrating them and taking their mindset, their values. And the last thing is you then put your trust, you put your value, you put your time, you put your energy, your investment into the idols of the age, and we'll come back to this in a moment. So, the church is lukewarm. 
And Jesus goes on in verse 17 and he says, um, he says, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Do you realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and a salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. So here in verse 17 and 18, we are given a glimpse to the first century Laodicean distractions and idols. And I want to ask you to see if you can relate to what's happening in the church at this moment. So Jesus speaks specifically to a church that's 2,000 something years old. And they're dealing with three main issues that he names. First of all, Laodicea was wealthy. They were extraordinarily rich. They were known for all of their banks throughout uh, Laodicea. People came from all over the world to bank with them. They were strong in their banking game, if you will. And we know this because at some point there was a major earthquake that destroyed the city and rather than taking loans from the Roman Empire, they had enough money from the bank to provide and rebuild their city. They were self-sufficient in their wealth and their wealth produced a level of pride that Jesus confronts. He says to them that you do not need a thing. You do not need a thing. That is a mindset of the Laodicean church, that they are wealthy, which means they have developed a mindset that creates a le level of self-sufficiency that, that they don't need anything. That's at least what they see. That's at least what they believe. And Jesus confronts it. That their wealth blinds them to their poverty. The second idol or distraction that the Laodicean church faces is the fact that Laodicea was famous for its clothing industry. I love this about Laodicea. It was famous for making black wool. Their garments, I have some pictures of them, were exported around the world. They were known in the first century Roman Empire as the best dressed people throughout Asia. Isn't that great? So this is like Paris during Fashion Week. They're known for their image. They're obsessed with their clothing industry. The Laodicean church, the third thing, was famous for its medical school. They had a salve, an, uh, an eye ointment that they developed to help weak and failing eyes. And people would come from all over the world to buy their, check this out, medical technology. So notice the three things that the church 2,000 years ago, struggled with. That these are the three things that Jesus confronts when he's talking specifically to a lukewarm church, that they are struggling in a context that's obsessed, that has put their trust in wealth, in image, and technology. Now, these three things by themselves or individually are not bad. Wealth is not a bad thing. God is not against people making loads of money. Um, God's not against having stuff. He's not against uh, dressing a certain way or being on social media. He's not against an image. Side note, 
The Hebrew word for image in the Old Testament is idol. Just a side note on that. And he's not against technology. I'm, technology is a gift. We are, are saving lives because of technology. We're connecting relationally because of technology. But we know that they do have a power and a force that can influence you in a significant way. All three of these things, wealth, image, and technology provide significant challenges for disciples of Jesus. And why? Well, wealth, image, and technology provide significant means of comfort and security, identity, power, status, significance in society, and purpose. You see, wealth and the pursuit of money and possessions um, can easily displace God because it leads to a level of self-sufficiency that can lead to a form of blindness that was in the Laodicean church that they couldn't actually see that they were uh, self-reliant and self-sufficient um, that they didn't have a need for God so they displace God with their wealth because wealth produces a false sense of security, doesn't it? Yet we still strive after those things. Again, nothing wrong with it but you're playing with fire Image and technology also demand a certain <clears throat> level of devotion. Does, doesn't wealth procure, uh, pure, uh, uh, curating or procuring a, an image to display and technology um, demand a certain level of devotion to keep up with it? Like if you're focused on your image, you need to stoke that fire. You need to keep buying clothes. You need to keep up with the latest fashion trends. You need to keep on posting those perfectly curated images to, to make sure people see you as the person you wanna be. And you need to feed that monster that will take over your life to make yourself look a certain way. Image is not just about clothing, it's about looking a certain way, blasting yourself to be a certain kind of person filtered with events and camera angles and photo editing opportunities. You guys, we live in an image-driven culture and it demands devotion. Technology is a blessing, but it's also a curse. Technology, ha technology has an incredible amount of power today, power to, um, to, uh, to, to change the way we interact in the world. It literally, the internet, we have books now, we recognize the power of internet is changing the way our brain works, period. Technology, in many ways, today is replacing faith. It has a level that is so, uh, it is so evident in our, our context. Some of the most famous uh, leaders of tech companies believe technology will save the world. We are trying to expand um, life and we're trying to extend how long we live on this planet through technology, um, but technology has the power to disrupt our discipleship. Does it not? Has anyone ever tried to do a devotion to spend a quiet time with God on their phones and maybe they're reading their Bibles and they get distracted by Instagram or emails? I mean, think about this. You have a sacred moment with the creator of the universe and then all of a sudden it's interrupted by a promotional email or mindless scrolling through your, your social media feeds. Is this not crazy? Now, these things in themselves are not bad, but they're named in the book of Revelation as the issues that this church that has become lukewarm are struggling with. Jesus says to the church that has become lukewarm, by the way, distracted by the idols of its context, the idols of its day, wealth, image, and technology. He says to them, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. You are poor, you are blind, you are naked. And the solution, according to Jesus, is to buy gold from Jesus, find wealth from Jesus. Um, 
He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear as opposed to just to black clothes. And I don't think that's a specific conversation that I need to have with Jesus. Um, but by other, by clothes, he's re- regarding their issues of, of putting their identity in what they wear and their image. Um, and be fashioned by the character of Jesus. Be fashioned by Jesus, in other words. Trust his way and his values. And then it says to buy this ointment, this salve uh, to put on your eyes so you can actually see that, look, the technology you have is good, but there's something else behind the scenes that your relationship to me must be more uh, but must be better, must be closer than the relationship you have to the world. So Jesus is inviting this local church to confront the idols of its day. Jesus is inviting the, the church in this moment to reflect on what it's confronted with, what its idols were. I just wanna pause just for a moment. we we'll just take 30 seconds. And if you could write down your distractions, your idols, what would they be? Let's take just 30 seconds and write down, what are the things that you struggle, what distracts your discipleship to Jesus? Did you write your distractions down? I have a long list. So Jesus says, look, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. So Jesus invites the church now to grow up, up, to be disciplined in pursuit of him, to place one's trust, not in those distractions or in those idols, not to be distracted by those idols, but to cultivate a deep, passionate faith for God alone. And if you have identified or self-diagnosed yourself as being distracted, even potentially being lukewarm, The question then is, how do we overcome spiritual apathy? How do we overcome a lukewarm faith, which is the dominant form of faith in our world today, at least in the West? The first thing I want you to do is to receive Jesus' rebuke and respond with gratitude. Brothers and sisters, we don't talk about this in the church, but if this is the word of God to us in this moment, if he's challenging a lukewarm Christianity and if we assess and say, man, I am distracted, I don't have passion for Jesus, all I have is habit and practices and, 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 and obligation to Jesus, may I encourage you to be humble and to receive Jesus' rebuke and respond with gratitude. Receive this as God's word for you because he loves you. I, I, I love my kids. And anyone that knows me knows that I cherish my two boys. My, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, Ezra and Amos, and I love them so much they can do no wrong in my eyes, although they do. Both Ezra and Amos are beautiful and kind and generous and they have Jesus in their hearts and they love God and they love others. I'm seeing it, it's amazing. I'm watching a six and a three-year-old and they also have strong opinions. They also have a desire to live based on their own ideas and some of those opinions are great, some of those ideas are great and I've learned to come under them but some of them don't align with our values as a family or our values as followers of Jesus, especially my three-year-old. <laughs> now, Amos is three, and he's strong. He's opinionated. He's fierce, and he's wild. His name is Amos Wild. I named him that, which I should have named him, I don't know, Amos Calm, Amos 
relaxed, but he's not. He is a force, and I love it. And we are trying to parent him in a way that honors the strength that God has given him. But when he uses his hands to hit his brother or his mouth to bite his brother, we have to discipline him. How many of you know what I'm talking about? We don't, we tell him, look, we don't use our hands uh, in our family to hurt. We use our hands to serve, to heal, to create, and to love each other. So when I discipline my three-year-old, I'm not doing it because I'm angry. Sometimes I do get angry. I'm doing it because God entrusted me to love my boy in a way that that raises him up, that creates an environment for him to flourish. And if a parent doesn't discipline a child, if a parent doesn't instruct a child who doesn't yet know the way they should go, they're failing their children at an early age. And Jesus is instructing his church with deep conviction to receive a rebuke that we need to receive so that we can move forward in our discipleship with Jesus. Now, I know it's hard to hear, but this is what he's trying to do. So brothers and sisters, rather than just moving aside and and letting the sin continue in your life, letting the distractions continue, may I encourage you to receive the rebuke. Receive the rebuke with gratitude and respond with gratitude. Write down what Jesus is saying to you and make some changes. Spend some time. If you don't have time in the day, wake up 30 minutes early if you have to. Wake up at 4.30. I believe the creator of the universe deserves that kind of devotion. If we will spend hours on YouTube or hours on Instagram or hours voxering or texting or calling. I believe the creator of the universe, the savior of the world, the God who came in human form, took our place on the cross, shares his life, his intimacy, and eventually his rule and reign. I believe he deserves some time. Amen? I'll be amen by myself. Second, so as we honor God, we honor God with our response. The second is, I want you, how do we move out of a lukewarm spirituality or lukewarm faith, we have to move from self-sufficiency to God dependence. If you want to cultivate uh, passion in your life, you have to create space in your life to be dependent on God. That requires humility. You must humble yourself to a place where you're not quick to, cre- uh, to, to solve the problem or, or live a life that requires only self-sufficiency. Our life as Christians requires faith, and faith uh, is spelled R-I-S-K. In other words, in order to grow as a Christian, we must cultivate an environment that requires risk, that requires God to show up. Otherwise, we're living a life of comfort. Otherwise, we have everything we need, then we're not pushing ourselves to give beyond what we think, to live generously, to live as a service to others, to live as an example to others. I believe God wants to move us from self-sufficiency to God dependence, where our lifestyle requires God to show up. What are the ways you are living your life right now without God? Is it possible for you to live as a Christian without the power of the Holy Spirit? If you are living a life without the power of the Holy Spirit, may I, may I imply or suggest to you that perhaps you aren't living the life that God desires? Just stop right there. That in fact, he's waiting to enter into every aspect of your life, to energize you and motivate you with his Holy Spirit. But right now, you don't even need, you don't even need him because you're not living a life that requires much of God's breath into it. Oh, come on. 
This will just preach itself, won't it? Revelation 3.20 says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus wants to be in your life. He wants intimacy and he's on the outside knocking. And I want you to imagine your entire life as a house with many rooms. In other words, Jesus wants to come into the house, but Jesus wants to come into every room in that house. You gotta let him in. Let him into your life. Let him into your work life. Let him into your office space. Let him into your sexuality and your identity, into your marriage. Let him into your finances, into your dreams. Let him into your past. Let him into your uh, conflict. Let him into your depression. Let him, let him into your insecurity and your anger. Let him into your life. The last thing that can help us move into a, a out of a lukewarm spirituality is we move from habits of distraction to intimacy with Jesus. You see, I think we, we have so many things that we do out of un, uh, that are unintentional that Jesus wants to, to come into our life, but then he doesn't wanna just enter into that space. He wants to be intimately involved in those things. See, pride will always resist vulnerable relationships. Pride disables vulnerability. But Jesus wants you to humble yourself so that you can have relationship with him because he wants relationship with you. And when it says he wants to eat a meal with you, he's, he's saying some of the most powerful words in the Bible. He wants to covenant with you. He wants to be in that intimate, loving relationship in your life. He wants to share with you your experiences. He wants to be with you um, in your everyday moments, not just a checklist, not just a task, not just something that you do over here called spirituality. Jesus wants to just be a part of your existence, and this is the invitation that you have. Uh, you have to move from the distractions that keep you from passionate faith and you move to greater and greater intimacy so that your entire life is one great amen. Are you with me? Well, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. I love the translation that's found in the message. Essentially, he says, are your ears working? Or one way to say it is, are your ears awake? Do you hear the Holy Spirit? Are you listening in this moment to what God's saying, that perhaps what we have as a church as we, as we um, end the seven churches of Revelation, and now, now we're gonna go into the rest of the book, we have to realize that the Spirit is, is speaking to us. He's moving, he's ministering, and he's speaking to you. So Father, would you bless my brothers and sisters, release a move of, the, of God, remove, remove our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh, put passion and fire inside of us that we wouldn't ever be lukewarm, that we would be on fire for you, Jesus, and that we would be intimately connected to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray this as one body. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.
toi 